Those with a drive to go have an undeniable calling. They are not content to simply have a transformative idea. They want to create and build. They want to wrestle challenges to the ground and bring solutions to scale. They are makers and doers. They are go-getters. Go-Getters features straight-up conversations with leaders on the forefront of change who are taking action to impact our world, just as Lehigh people have done for more than 150 years. Join us as we explore their challenges, their passions, and what makes them go. Hello, this is Joe Buck, Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at Lehigh University, here with another episode of Go-Getters. My guest today is Kristen Agatone, the university's Chief Investment Officer, She is responsible for overseeing the management of the Lehigh Endowment. Kristen joined the university in 2016. She holds a BA in economics from Harvard College and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. Fantastic to be here. Kristen, would you introduce us to Lehigh's endowment? What is it? How much is it? What is it used for? Yeah, happy to. So uh, Lehigh's Endowment, or as we refer to it as the long-term portfolio um, that our office, the investment office manages, is about $2.1 billion total portfolio. And what's that really comprised of is mostly the endowment, as you mentioned. And the endowment's goal is to support the current annual operating needs of the university, as well as being able to support the university into you know, as far in the future as one can imagine, hopes the university would be around to, which is perpetual in our mindset. So that's really the dual objective um, that we have in our office is to maintain that 2.1 billion, hopefully grow it over time, which enables us to both grow current spending as well as the future resources that the university has. I, I get asked this question a lot by by alums on the road, and, and I'll ask you directly, are absolute returns your objective function? Uh, yes, but it's also more than that. I think in that that is the overarching goal to achieve those two mandates. Yeah. So if we to shortcut it, achieve more than let's say we spend about five percent of the university's payout rate. If we achieve more than that, uh, and we always think about inflation, which is obviously top of mind for a lot of people these days. So we target more of a seven percent return. If we can achieve that over the long term, we should be able to achieve those two goals, right? Which is the number one objective. In reality, though, and particularly in the investment world, you're also always judged on a relative basis. So there's the absolute and then this relative. The tricky part is on a relative basis, everybody might have a different relative benchmark that they want to compare you to. You know, that can be something like a 60-40 portfolio that you know you or I or everybody as an individual can invest in. That could be compared to other peer. Uh, institutions. It could be compared to what we have as a policy portfolio, which kind of is a little bit more of a specific breakdown about how we allocate our portfolio and we're judged against that. Uh, you know, it can be global. It can be just U.S. Um, so not that we can achieve all of those at one time, although we aspire to outperform, we have all those in the back of our mind. Um, and so it's both absolute, absolutely, um, but also relative. If, if you were asked to describe, you know, Lehigh's investment approach or philosophy, you mentioned multiple different classes, different types of investments, but would you share with our audience the, the um, what, what are the driving forces behind the decisions that you and your team make as it relates to the, the investments that, uh, um, that, that, that you may entertain or may be interested in or not? 
the the most common way to sum up is the endowment philosophy. And that goes back to a gentleman named David Swenson, who, when he was starting the Yale investment portfolio, um, he managed Yale University for many, many years, um, started to think about these alternative asset classes. So that means stuff that's not public stocks or public bonds. Uh, And that started to broach people into areas um, which he kind of led the way with real estate, venture capital, uh, buyouts, growth equity, uh, hedge funds. Uh, So all those fall into this category called alternatives, which has been kind of, you can kind of roll up into what, what, how, how can an endowment take advantage of its long-term horizon um, to drive outside investment returns? And a lot of that's investing in inefficient alternative asset classes that are not as liquid, daily tradable, you know, as public stocks and bonds. I would say, so that was the kind of core at it. And that's still there. I'd say as time has evolved, a number of those asset classes certainly still exist but they've also become more efficient over time as people started to invest more in venture capital, which I'm sure a lot of people hear about these days is people invest in hedge funds. So our job is to kind of take that basic framework, which is still there. So we still invest in public equity. We have a category called absolute return. We have a category called real estate and we have a category called uh, private equity as well as cash and treasuries. Those are our high level frameworks. And then what we do underneath of them is we try to understand really within those sub areas, where can we find the most inefficient markets with the most attractive returns with the least amount of risk to us to try to obtain, or obtain, hit or achieve those absolute as well as relative objectives? So I'd say the framework's still there. It's just gotten a lot more difficult because a lot more people are investing in real estate these days. A lot more people are investing in venture capital. Um, and typically, the more money, the more investors that come in, the more efficient those markets are. And and. Does the amount of money that we have to invest affect either the investments that are available to you or the decisions that you would make? When you started back in 2016, I, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I'm going to make a guess. You'll correct me. The endowment was 1.234 somewhere in there. Is that is that about right when you started? Yeah, about 1.2. Yeah, and it's now 2.1. Um, as of this recording, uh, it's, it's, it's 2.1. Um, and so, you, you know, uh, I, I won't ask you what you're most proud of because it's likely taking it from 1.2 to 2.1. Um, but, but what does getting to the $2 billion market and down, what does that mean for the institution from your seat in terms of our either reputation in the marketplace or ability to uh, play in certain marketplaces? Does it change things drastically for the institution? It, it does. And there's definitely a lot of positives that come with it. And then scale also brings um, some challenges, candidly, when you get too, too large. I wouldn't say we're at that challenges point. I'm talking about, you know, when you're up in the five, six billion dollar range, which I aspire to have those challenges that yeah. once we get to there someday. Um but what scale lets us do is that it, it makes us be able to uh, have a more meaningful say and it's uh, with the amount of checks basically that we write to outside managers. So that means that we can have, you know, be a larger portion of the total capital that they manage, which means that we have more influence uh, over, you know, um, you know, providing feedback, making sure that they're sticking to a strategy and mandate. The nice part is that two billion, we can still though, we're small enough to kind of sneak in there, right? So a lot of these opportunities, you know, aren't infinite, right? That we can find. And so if we can write a investment check for 10 to $15 million, whereas somebody who's a peer who's 
five to $6 billion, they're making minimal checks of 30, $40 million, whatever it might be, it creates opportunities for us. But we can invest in earlier stage companies and funds rather than having to do late stage where valuations are larger, there's more risk of the market. And so it's kind of like actually a nice sweet spot we're in right now being at 2 billion. You know, I think the two to three will also give us a little bit more room and flexibility to have again, more say, more influence. Um, But again, once we start to get too big, then you kind of lose some of the opportunities on the investment side. Are there questions that you get again and again from um, from the Lehigh community one way or another or, or, or asked another way, is there, you know, is there something that you wish people knew about the endowment? The question I get asked, and I think it's a fair question, is, you know, as I'm sure many people who are listening to this would recognize, there's never a shortage of ideas or funding needed at the university today. And so the question that we must get is, well, what is the value of having this $2 billion portfolio sitting there and why can't we use that today? And the first answer is we do use it today. We pay out about 80 plus million dollars a year to support the university's uh, budget. We also indirectly support it as well as far as the ability of the university to take on debt. Um, We are the, um, in addition to real estate and some other assets, one of the largest assets that the university has. And so there are ways to what we call what we refer to as monetize it and take advantage of that asset. And as it continues to grow, that lets you do other things such as take on more debt. You know, the, the current spending increase since I've been here, you know, it's, you know, I think um, increased by at least almost $10 million a year, possibly as far as the adult distribution to the university. So I think it's hard though. It's kind of, you know, that, that concept that we even as individuals all go through, what's the value of saving today to spend in the future, right? That it's really hard to do that when you know you have so much and there's a lot of fantastic, interesting stuff that the university, both faculty, staff are doing today. Um, So we try to balance that too, um, saying that 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 will always be the case and we can't really take away from future generations, um, you know, because they'll have plenty of ideas and the university will have plenty of new initiatives in the future that we also need to Make sure we can support them. No, I appreciate you saying that because in in my job as in development on the relations, when when we are asking our community to make gifts to the endowment, right? We are we are framing those that they are generational neutral, right? That these are gifts, and the purpose of this gift is going to be um, present and available as long as the university is is open, right? And so um, people ask me a, a lot about that. And, and I try to kind of equate it, the difference between kind of charity and philanthropy, right? We're not trying to solve problems today, right? We are trying to invest in and make sure the resources are available forever. And I think that is where our two offices work together, right? We are working to bring those dollars in and you are working to invest them forever and not spend them to solve a problem today. I'm curious about any investments that you would describe as kind of um, quirky or um, kind of out of the ordinary? Any Anything that you think our, our uh, alumni, family, parents would be um, curious to know that, that the Lehigh Endowment is invested in? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, this is the exciting part of our portfolio is that I kind of describe it as, you know, if you were walking down the street and there was a salesman who had like one of every kind of watch, you know, they could yeah. sell you every different Want to buy a watch? <laughs> exactly. So the really exciting part is if you look underneath the hood and you yeah. actually see what type of companies were invested in, because it's a huge spectrum. And, and just to give you a couple uh, um, examples, we, um, one of the companies, um, 
that we support provides financing for domestic whiskey manufacturers um, to help with their manage their receivables and inventories levels. Uh, another uh, a number of companies to support are I'll call broadly in the digital asset space, which I don't want to be confused with just Bitcoin um, yeah. because we actually do not have any currently any direct investments in Bitcoin, but they are more thinking about broadly of you know, how, how does this new technology get used? And then we've had some interesting investments, which, um, you know, it, we're actually invested in, in the carbon markets, like C- CCAs and Reggie's, which are actually regulated entities, but we, we look at it as a pure investment opportunity for us. Uh, and we look at it globally. Um, so, you know, we all have some private equity companies, software companies based, you know, certainly in Germany or Norway or Sweden. Um, we'll have some, you know, investments in Japan as well. Um, so it, it's, you know, those were just a couple of three specific examples, but uh, there are numerous. And then we have some stuff that's, you know, we, we are in some public equities, you know, stocks and names that everybody would know. Uh, you know, we have some large passive positions in the S&P 500. Um, but, you know, I think where we find the most interesting are, are those more inefficient, less trafficked, often become more traffic over time because sure. they become more institutions, more um, available. Um, uh, but our goal is to be there early in a lot of those instances. Let me switch to um, uh, a little bit about your background and, and education. Um, most folks won't know that uh, Kristen and I uh, grew up about 15 minutes from each other uh, in, in the Philadelphia area. Um, we are both uh, first-generation college students. Um, one of us went to Harvard; the other one, the other one did not. So, let me ask you about ending up at Harvard. What what drove you to Harvard, and was that your plan all along? <laughs> Um, it, it was quite the opposite. I mean, I, uh, I was, before I got to college, my mother I was raised by a single mother, um, who, as you mentioned, did not herself go to college, but, and actually worked at American airlines for 40 years as an agent, but understood the value of education and how transformative it could be for somebody's personal as well as career, career path. And so she, um, went above and beyond, do everything good to get me the best middle school, high school education. And that kind of set me up to be able to understand what it meant to apply for college, candidly, um, what it was required. Because um, oftentimes the challenge is if that's not in your family, it's a black box uh, to how do you go about doing this? And so by having that, I was lucky enough to my high school in particular, have a really good support system around me as to kind of guide through that process. And I just always, always a nerd and intellectually curious and, you know, just love learning. I, you know, was excited for when school started um, each year. So, you know, when we were talking about which colleges to apply to, you know, um, for some reason, I, I think probably because I had no connections, um, I somehow I got a category that was like a super, super stretch category and um, Harvard, like Harvard was in that category. And it was kind of a late ad because we were touring Boston and we we're like, oh, let's just stop by. And they had the common app, I think, at that point in time. Um, and so you know, said, so, well, let's, let's just kind of give it a shot in addition to, you know, handful other schools and they had early admission there. So it was a long shot. It was who knows, you know, I think my mother wanted me to stick around the Philadelphia area. Um, there's lots of great schools in the Philadelphia area. 
And it's just one of those things that kind of fell, fell in, you know, uh, for me. And do you remember when that, when that envelope showed up uh, at, at your door? Uh, I do because I actually didn't get the envelope. Um, my, um, my mother happened to be at home. I was at school. Um, not only did she get it from the mailbox, she opened it before <laughs> I saw it. And the only reason I knew was because I was called out of my, I think it was like my AP chem class or something. And not they, a bad class to get called out of though. I wasn't like, you know, I, I wasn't disappointed. Um, so uh, but I was told that I had forgotten to sign a couple forms, like signatures on some uh, other applications that were going to go in regular decision. So they called me up to the admissions office and uh, opened the door. And there my mother was already crying in a Harvard sweatshirt that she borrowed from somebody else with a letter. And I was like, I, I had no idea what was going on, but quickly figured it out. Myself started crying, hugging. Um, it was just a fantastic moment. Somehow it's a small school. I went to high school, the rest of the school kind of, um, quickly found out the upper school and everybody was like coming out and hugging and nobody was you know, in class. So it was just quite a, you know, to this day, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's such a special, special moment for me. And not just because of the name of the brand, what actually happened was the opportunities that higher education opened up for me. I mean, it's just different than what I ever had thought, you know, would have been a possibility. Yeah. I, I often say that it changed the trajectory of my life and then therefore my my kids' lives. And I know you have a a, a new son and you know I, I'm I won't put words in your mouth, but but I imagine that you would say that the opportunities that you got at a place like Harvard in fact changed your son's life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything that flows from me, I mean, uh, it changed my mother's life, yes. you know, and because of just her wishes and aspirations for me um, changed in that you know, moment. And Kennelly, this is where, um, I mean, as you very much know, the work that you do to help support the financial aid, there's no way that's I could have gone to Harvard without, I was on scholarship, um, uh, got to meet you know, the donor who supported me, those are great connections, you know, during, and that was the first time that I understood what an endowment was, what financially, what scholarship was. Um, you know, I was also on work study, was also on student loans, you know, the whole gamut, my mother had to take out a loan. Um, things have gotten better, I think, overall since then, um, with helping support um, more broadly um, financial aid packages. Uh, but that was the first time that crystallized me in, in my mind that I guess, I can do this. Okay. You get in, but how can you afford this? Right. And so that was kind of the part two of the conversation. Do do you think you maybe indirectly, but do do you attribute your endowment management philosophy or your, um, uh, your calling to be involved in a university and what they're all about? How much of that is influenced by the fact that you received a scholarship to go to a place like Harvard? It made it an easy decision when I discovered that I could do this as a full-time job you know, uh, in, as compared to other areas of finance yeah. um, because it had the direct connection. Um, and so when I realized that, you, you know, um, it was had a very tangible impact in saying that if we grow from 1.3 to 2.1, where we're today, and ho- hopefully more, that can help catalyze what I was able to experience for many other um, students. Mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, as, as much as, you know, there's a lot of direct philanthropy that goes in on your side to hopefully that we can, I can contribute, that our office can contribute to that work as well. Absolutely. Was it, was there any aspects that were hard about being a first generation student at Harvard? Absolutely. I mean, I think, and this is actually, it's, yes. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, and it was, <laughs> 
Um, there are many, many stories. I particularly, I would say, and I think Harvard and a lot of institutions have gotten better. There is definitely a very wide spectrum of means, right, uh, that come there with some very, um, and, and you know, it's not it's not necessarily my fellow students. It was just the ways that we were brought up, right. Um, so it's not like it was, it was just. Um, Everything from, <laughs> this is going to sound silly, where the high school I went to, we all had to wear a uniform, um, which I loved. <laughs> and then you go to college and everybody, you know, you're wearing your own clothes, right? And you can even imagine just, you know, being a woman in that there's a whole spectrum, right? And I had, you know, sweatpants and I played athletics and you'll probably live most of my life in those clothes. And that's what I had. It can be as far as... Um, you know, we didn't really like eat out that much when I was growing up to like nice restaurants. And then you're kind of in a different world where you're interacting with other families and parents and how, how they grow up. Um, trips and vacations, you know, when you're not at school, where do you go? Um, you know, a lot of that was for me back home. Um, so I think Lehigh, I know other institutions start to think about what does that experience look like from people who are coming in the first time and might not have the means of other students because the demands are and expects are, are very different yeah. um, oftentimes. What what advice would you have for uh, for our first gen Lehigh students? So I, I think there's a lot of challenges, but what I tried to focus on is opportunities. And I felt like I needed to take, I should, and I wanted to take advantage of every opportunity that was given to me because it was so special. Uh, it was so special for me, for my family, for my mom, all the work. And so I think that is that to like really, um, for back, lack of a better, lean into all the classroom resources, um, time with faculty, research, internship opportunities. Uh, I, I kind of feel like I, looking back, I, the good news, I don't think I ever wasted any time on campus. There was always something for me to explore or to learn that was new to me. And uh, that's what I have encouraged them to do. And I think, again, that there are hopefully more resources now at Lehigh, whether it's on the student affairs side, to help people explore those. Um, but the university itself, whether it's on campus or off campus, can help really somebody who's first gen really understand what else is out there, whether it's personally or professionally to help them learn about what they like, what they don't like. Um, and, and I think that's just, uh, to me, that was a, a, you know, a, a great, great opportunity, yeah. a platform. Are, are, are there ways that you get to connect with Lehigh beyond your day job? Do you do uh, much work with our students at all? It's something that uh, uh, when I first joined, and that's, I mean, it, I, I love talking with the students. I mean, I think it's uh, that energy, the interest in what we do, um, specifically, you know, on, on the finance side, it, it's it's fantastic. Um, I've tried to connect in a couple of ways you know, during the, you know, last year has been a little bit more challenging being on campus for all of us. Um, but uh, uh, we have a couple of student endowment portfolios, which are actually um technically part of the endowment, but managed by a number of student clubs and organizations, primarily through the business school. Uh, actually, I think uh, in a, a few days here, I'm catching up with them. Um, so I've tried to do either a couple of times or one, um, you know, at least once a year, try to talk to them, provide advice, hear how they're managing their portfolios. Um, so that's kind of been the most uh, direct conversations um, I've had. Uh, we've had a couple, or at least one intern from Lehigh in our office over the years. Um, and I think that was a, you know, uh, an eye-opening experience for them to, to learn what we do and specifically have uh, insight on the investment side. Uh, so we've, we're trying to try to do it uh, as much as we can. Uh, the reality is we're also uh, remote off campus as well as because the nature of our work 
uh, tends to be more, um, we'll call it on the 95 cor corridor um, up and down the East Coast, or candidly on the road for us. Um, so, uh, but uh, but always open to it and have talked to a number of faculty members uh, over the years about maybe there's some more ways that our office can be integrated into, into campus. As you know, we're celebrating 50th anniversary of co-education at Lehigh. Do you have any words of wisdom for for women or for our for our women students that are interested in either investment banking or endowment management how you know any anything that that you could wind back and tell the you know 18 19 year old Kristen um, as as they think about managing a career in finance as a woman yeah and uh, you know I I think probably it's funny you go back 50 years I'd say probably even during my career there's probably stories that I I wish I wouldn't have to know or tell about that I've experienced that probably would have felt, you know, like they should have happened 50 years ago, candidly, but have happened more recently than that. So I think the first advice is, is to be resilient and have confidence in, in yourself and knowing that there will be times of adversity um, for whatever reason, it might be gender, it might not be gender, um, but to, I think it's easy in those instances to doubt yourself um, and to not have confidence in your own intellectual ability, your own skill set. I, I mean, there are a lot of feed, I'll call it feedback that has been given me over the years where, um, you know, what well, we, we wish you were a little bit more aggressive or uh, louder um, and you know, wait six months and, you know, being thoughtful and listening and making an investment decision on that basis turned out to be the right outcome. Uh, and so I wouldn't say, I would encourage, you know, any woman or just, you know, any student in general to be, have confidence in your own skill sets. Don't doubt yourself because ultimately, you know, that's just feedback. It may or may not be correct. And sometimes it's incorrect and it's not necessarily coming from, um, you know, that that person's right is just whether it's a bias or it's just what they know. Um, so I think that has served me well. It does require patience. It does require resiliency. It does require um, ability to compartmentalize uh, and, uh, you know, uh, not to take it on personally. Um, I think, you know, that's just good, you know, advice for anybody in, in any career, probably not just within finance. Um, and what I've been in, it's hard to do this when you're right um, starting your professional career, but what I hope to do now, particularly kind of with somebody who's more senior in positions, is that now you have other women uh, who can help support and speak out and help motivate change. Um, I will acknowledge, you know, even when I was you know, first in investment banking, the, the idea of being vocal and standing up for that was was intimidating because that was, you know, what is going to happen? I'm just starting my career. Um, so I wouldn't feel, you know, I tell people don't feel too hard on yourself. Like that is understandable. And as you grow into it and hopefully there are other women like myself who can help, you know, speak out more, say more and, and try to, you know, continue to evolve. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Chris, and I know that you have a, a son who's three years old now. And um, while he's not, wasn't truly a kind of pandemic baby, I think he, he was, what, maybe eight months old or something when the pandemic started. So you, you certainly got to spend a lot of time together as a family over the, over the past couple of years. Um, so it's a little unfair for me to ask, what, what do you do when you're not managing Lehigh's endowment? Because I could imagine what that has been having a, a small <laughs> child at home, especially over the last couple of years. But um, uh, what, what was that like to, to, to find yourself 
in an environment where you're um, at home during a pandemic with a with a very small child? <laughs> um, it was, it, as you mentioned, there it was, um, gosh, it was stressful. It was overwhelming. But looking back on it, that was all true. But having had that time to spend with our son, Ethan, um, is unbelievable. I mean, I think, you know, you're <laughs> we definitely not um, perfect parents during that time. We're trying to juggle, um, you know, we had a system, we'll call it every, every parent have a system set up, right? And then when he was seven or eight months old, that system kind of just got thrown up into the air as far as how we balance, you know, caring for him, how we balance our work, how we balance our time together. Um, but there were joys around it in the sense of uh, the grandparents raised their hands to help take care of him. And um, we ended up having to relocate outside Boston for that reason. And, and the fact that not only we get to spend time with them, but that our son got to know his grandparents so well um, uh, is, you know, it, it's just a big, big positive. Um, I mean, I think at least us with young parents, with young kids, we're still waiting to kind of come out of this because it doesn't, you know, you know, we, we still have challenges as far as concerns about COVID or just getting sick or not everything is back to normal. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, hopefully just a once in a lifetime experience. And, you know, our son will, has a lot of positive memories from it. Yes. I think he, he probably, you know, we have a lot, a lot of stories that, you know, my husband and I tell, but, um, for him, he got a lot of time with mom and dad. So let me uh, ask you a different question. I'm, I'm always curious with folks like like you and your profession, like how often at at uh, cocktail parties do you get asked for inve- investment advice from from some from some individual who's wondering how he or she can maximize their retirement fund? It, it typically, I'm not an interesting person to talk to on that because that's just not my. Uh, I do have my own point of view, but my my even my own personal investing philosophy is you know. Uh, it's a full-time job to do like, you know, day trading or, or you know, and uh, you know, I, I don't dabble, like I, I wouldn't be one to dabble in that. Yeah. So if you looked at my own personal investment philosophy, it's a lot of index funds, long-term, you know um, you know, hopefully just, you know, capturing what the market performance is going to do and make sure I'm in balance between risky and non-risky assets. So I'm really boring on that side. Uh, Kristen, I was really hoping you were going to say that you had it all in on crypto or something really <laughs> outrageous for our audience to, to raise their eyebrows over. Um, I have one more question. Uh, well, I have two more questions for you, but the first one is um, back to our work in development. We get asked quite often from alumni who um, work in finance about wanting to talk to you about potentially having either you know having the our endowment invest in their idea or their company or their product before. Uh, uh, an alum comes to you, or, or what would you tell them to be prepared to hear, to experience? What 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 advice could we give those alums that I'm, I'm selfishly asking for me? When an alum asks me, can I talk to Kristen? What should I tell them a bit to be prepared to uh, to experience? Well, the first, uh, first thing is we're always happy to have the conversations because it one, um, it, it, the more data points um, and different investment perspectives that we can gather, it makes us better. So, um, that, that concept of, you know, an open door policy or willingness to talk is something that, you know, I, I think is important for our investment office. Um, paired with that is the reality of how, um, we say, how, how often we say no <laughs> compared, compared to yes, as far as the ultimate investments that we do. 
And the reason for that is because we also need to make sure that we run a concentrated portfolio. And so just to give a sense, we have right now, I think about 44 external managers across our entire portfolio, across all asset classes that we work with. Now, what can people do as far as to help maximize or, you know, their, their chances, you know, of, of us, you know, investing um, uh, with them, it really comes down to being able to articulate what, what is so, um, what differentiates them. So at the end of the day, you know, um, their past performance or track record is not um, guaranteed. That's what I've been looking at for, but it gives us a sense of, you know, how do we marry what they're telling us with what they actually have done. Mm -hmm. And so being able to dissect how they've generated their returns, um, you know, where does that come from? You know, as far as it, is it because of certain, you know, more macro influences versus micro, um, you know, the more specific they can get on that, um, the better for us. Uh, And again, we kind of engage in a two-way dialogue. So oftentimes, it's not necessarily the presentation, but it's the conversation, the questions, you know, that go back and forth that are really helpful to us. Well, thank you, Kristen. This has been a real pleasure. It's been very informative and uh, and very enjoyable. And I, I really want to thank you for your time today. I do have um, one final question that we do ask all of our podcast um, guests, and it's um, not an original question. It is existential in nature, and when you hear it, you will imagine that we've gotten quite a variety of of, of answers. So, um, I will end with this, um, Kristen Agatone. Is there anything you know for sure? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I for sure know right now that uh, I, I'm fortunate to have a number of people who, who love me in my life and that is fantastic um, but um, I'm not going to pretend that I that there's much more that I know for sure outside of I, I think that's sufficient so Kristen <laughs> thank you again for, for being on our Go-Getters podcast you truly are a go-getter and somebody who wakes up every day doing great work for, for Lehigh and, and for our students and it's a real honor for me to, uh, to have you as a colleague and, and I appreciate uh, all that you do for Lehigh thank you thanks Joe appreciate it this has been Go-Getters a podcast from Lehigh University hosted by Joe Buck, Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations. I'm Chloe Noble, a senior at Lehigh University from Woodstock, Vermont. I'm majoring in journalism and communications and currently interning for the Office of Development and Alumni Relations, and I'm so happy to be here supporting the podcast project. Special thanks to producer Janet Norwood, media production specialist Jarrett Brown, and the Lehigh University Office of Development and Alumni Relations. Go inside the episode at lehigh.edu slash go-getters to learn more about Kristen. Don't forget to subscribe to Go-Getters on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so that other listeners can find us.